Good evening. Welcome to Theology on Tap. Finally, after a, a year and a half, two years off or something. So, you, you Lutherans, like, for those of you who are just getting here now, like, every, right, I walk in the door and everyone's sitting in the back. And then by force, everyone's having to sit a little bit closer to the front. So now we're getting to where there's seating up here if you need it. Um, See, uh, I'll just jump. I'll jump right in here. As, as many of you might recall, is that, do I hear music? Am I losing my mind? Oh, Beth, <laughs> Beth's throwing a party here. <laughs> uh, the, the originally, when I when I got the idea for theology on tap, it was it was all right. I'm in a church with a lot of people. Um, it'd be great to just hang out with some people who want to talk Lutheran theology, and I want to drink some good local microbrews, and I can justify this, this wonderful Bible study opportunity. And uh, so as you, for those of you who are with us near the end of, uh, before we stopped, we were like working through Luther one line at a time, and that was helpful, because uh, I think for many of you who didn't have time to necessarily read the text, we got to read it, and you could say that you read it, and we could, we could slug through. Downside was obviously, we couldn't cover a lot of territory, because it'd be like a whole month in between, and we'd especially if Chris shows up like he did tonight. Chris drove down from Schaumburg just to see us. Uh, we would get hung up on like one paragraph and we wouldn't actually finish. So the idea, uh, I, I preface it with that because the idea behind this new kind of format we'll try is so that we can, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the ideas more so than slugging through the text. So I'm going to put the expectation or the hope that if you have time to try to read the text in advance. However, Importantly, if you don't have time or you have some kind of sh- sh- shoulder surgery or something going on, yeah, still come. Okay? Well, the hope would be that it's the ideas that are floating around that we're going to be discussing and the application of the, of the ideas that he brings up. So we'll hit Abolition of Man for the next three, uh, three months. Uh, unless I forget, the next session will be February 16th, which is a Wednesday. So uh, again, we're Wednesday again in February. And that's actually the Wednesday right before the Lay Theology Conference. So I, I picked this day so I could use that to remind you to come on uh, Saturday for the Lay Theology Conference with Pastor Melius from Colorado. Use the fridge if you want. Bring your own beer. Uh, Beth has put out quite the spread for us here. So don't be shy about hopping up whenever you want. Grab some food. Um, grab another beer if you brought it. If you want to use the fridge, Chris brought like a construction worker cooler from the 1987. <laughs> got back there and maybe if we're lucky uh if me and dave can get brewing we'll have some kegs of microbrew in the in the months ahead so it takes time we just gotta get we gotta get started soon yeah. uh, uh dr adam francisco if you haven't had a chance to meet him he was actually our first speaker at our lay theology conference in 2016 i believe on apologetics and um so we're we're uh, blessed to have him as a member of our congregation and a professor at um at concordia chicago and the dean of Lutheran identity or something, something like that, whatever. Um, so he's up in Wheaton at, uh, at Wheaton College, has this really cool like C.S. Lewis like exhibit. What do you call it? Museum. Museum for C.S. Lewis. Uh, but he got into that. And he said, hey, we should get a group of people together. Do you, do you think, he said, do you think there'd be an interest in people at, at Bethany like to, to read like C.S. Lewis and talk about the theology in that? I was like, I know just the group. Uh, the theology on tap, so we got it going again. So really, um, I'm, I'm, I see myself as kind of like a fly on the wall for because um, I'm going to be able to learn from Dr. Francisco as well. 
what I'd like to do tonight is maybe for the first hour until we get it to about eight o'clock, just so you can kind of portion out your, or, uh, so we're rationing out your, your beer. <laughs> uh, around eight o'clock, we'll transition into, into maybe I'll kick out some questions into our, into our groups as far as things you found to be most interesting or did you disagreed with C.S. Lewis about or questions you might have had about the text. Um, and we'll kind of kick those around individual tables and couches and talk about that. For the first 45 minutes here or so, we'll have Dr. Francisco kind of give us the, uh, some background, some of, the, some of the important background as to the, the rationale for, for the work. Um, a couple of books have been put out, but she's got one here. After, after Humanity, I'll let you talk more about After Humanity. But um, the background, the context, the philosophical ideas that were, that were floating around at his time, and um, which if, if you read it, and, and like I read it like multiple times and listened to it multiple times. And if, by the way, if you don't, you can find this thing for free on YouTube, podcast, and it's audio all over the place. So if you're in a commute, you can listen to it. Very, so I've listened to it at least like five or six times. I've read it a few times, and eventually you start. Okay, that makes more sense now. <laughs> um, and once you once once the if you had this experience, I hope you did. Uh, once the lights go on, you're like, man, this guy, he called it. 80 years ago, the, the problem that we're facing, all, the, all these things that we're seeing around us today, and, and some, just some examples we'll kind of start with, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about the implications of this, but um, just in the recent news would be two, uh, two issues that kind of come to mind would be uh, the, the, the clear social issues, maybe the, the biggest explosive ones would be abortion and transgenderism. When you look at the impact of transgenderism in like sports, like college sporting events, and you've got someone who's, who's clearly a, a guy claiming to be a girl, competing in college sports, and it's actually making it so that girls can't really compete anymore. So it's really, it's so objectively obvious what's going on here. And everyone's gut is, this is just weird. And yet you're kind of being forced to convince your gut to just be quiet at least, or, or you're trying to, we're trying to work this thing through or socially constructed. We're told, I can't say anything about this object of truth. And so we're suppressing what is really there. A person's true sex, of course, she's going to win all the swimming events. She's 6'4 with really long arms, right? He or whatever. Um, so how do we get there? And this, this isn't necessarily the, the, the route to how we got there, but it's certainly a piece of it and thinking through the importance of objective truth. And uh, as, as Dr. Francisco will, will, exa- will um, explain more, Lewis is not writing, we're not reading a, this isn't a Bible study in the, in the sense that we're looking at the Bible, because Lewis isn't trying to talk to Christians. He's not trying to use the Bible as a argument for the faith. He's more pre-Bible, trying to just start a conversation, starting with what we as Christians call the natural law. Um, an, or, or the Tao is what he called it. And he interestingly called it the, the Tao, the Tao, if you want to say it. Um, because he's trying to like avoid Christian buzzwords. Natural laws are Christian buzzwords. So he said the Tao. He went with, he went with like, is it, would it be, or, or Chinese, as fair to say. Um, so that's, the con, that's a little bit of the context. And we'll come back to you know, implications for Christianity and stuff. So just chapter one today. And I won't take up too much more time, so uh, we'll have Dr. Francisco introduce the historical context, and uh, we'll really we'll just see where the conversation goes from there. And, again, don't be afraid to jump up. If you're if you're a member of the Ford family, you're at this perfect bottleneck between 
some people getting to food. So if you need to just push, push them out of the way, jump over, crawl over Rich, he's, he'll be happy. So, all right, let's, uh, let's pass the baton here to Dr. Francisco. couple of things. Um, it's what seven? It's after seven. I've worked all day. Got up at five to do jujitsu with my son. Uh, now I'm drinking beer, and this is recording, so this could be kind of dangerous. Um, um, like Pastor Clemmer said a while ago, we were talking about um, like a reading group, right? Is that how it went? And yeah. like, do you think anybody's interested in C.S. Lewis? And I asked about C.S. Lewis in particular because it's been a, um, he's always been popular, not always, he's been popular in American Protestant circles, especially conservative Protestant circles for, for some time. In fact, at the, the Marion Wade Center in, at Wheaton College, they're having uh, Mark Knoll, who's sometimes called the Dean of American Church History. He's taught church history for 50, 60 years, first at Wheaton, then at Notre Dame. Uh, he's giving a series of three lectures on the reception of C.S. Lewis in America by Catholics was, I think, a couple days ago. Next week, it's American Evangelicals, and I forget what the third week is. But Lewis has always been popular in um, Missouri Synod circles. If you, uh, Depending on what you read, you'll find some people really love Lewis, and some people even find a, um, an anonymous Lutheran in Lewis. That's a bit of a stretch. Um, others hate Lewis. Um, those, the haters, as they're called, haters going to hate. Um, the haters uh, don't like him because he's not orthodox on every, all the finer points of theology. Um, he's not orthodox from a, a Lutheran confessional vantage point. Shouldn't surprise us, he wasn't Lutheran. He was Anglican. Um, his friend J.R.R. Tolkien tried his darndest to get him to become Catholic. He never went, though, never swam the Tiber. Um, but he's Anglican, but he was certainly an Orthodox Christian. Uh, his, I think he was a secretary and probably, a, you know, like his personal secretary and probably like a very close, I guess close friend is a good description. A man named Owen Barfield, who knew him for decades, once described Lewis as the most, con- most uh, thoroughly converted man ever. Uh, meaning, uh, when Lewis left behind atheism, which he, I think he was an atheist for a good 15, 20 years, from his early teens to, I guess, right after he got out of World War I, um, I think 1929 or so, he embraces Christianity. When he embraced Christianity, there's a marked difference in everything he wrote. Um, we, uh, Pastor Clemmer, or no, Pastor Schumacher mentioned there that on the Thinking Fellows podcast, we've been going through the Chronicles of Narnia, and we were talking about C.S. Lewis, uh, some biographical stuff before all that. And um, one of the things we were comparing Tolkien and Lewis, both thoroughgoing Christians, um, the thing that's different, what marks Lewis is different to Tolkien, is Tolkien, his Christianity is sort of, it's very subtle. Um, it's it's not overt. It's it's certainly not evangelical and or evangelistic, if you will. What everything Lewis writes after his conversion, with perhaps the exception of real professional like scholarly papers where he's writing on literary criticism or something, um, 
He has, as uh, the author of this book, uh, Michael Ward, once put it, um, he feels or he carries the burden of the weight of his neighbor's glory on his shoulders. And that's a reference to one of C.S. Lewis's uh, more famous sermons, which is kind of an interesting thing, thinking from our, our vantage point. Lewis was not an ordained clergy person or clergyman. What, what do we say nowadays? Can we say clergyman? Okay. <laughs> like I, like he's like he's the the PC go to guy or something. Um, um, well, he he was not ordained, um, but at uh, the University of Oxford, where he taught for most of his life, with the exception of the last decade or so, when he was we say down at Cambridge, um, he you know they the the chapel the university chapel there they. Normally, it would be an ordained priest in the Church of England, but um, sometimes there weren't ordained priests around, and so they would ask somebody who was Christian and theologically oriented. So in his sermon, Weight of Glory, uh, Lewis, Weight of Glory is not the easiest sermon to read, um, but the last paragraph, maybe two paragraphs, are really telling about what Lewis is about. Um, Lewis, and you see it in all, once you read this, you're like, oh, that's, that's why his, his evangelical posture is so overt and everything. That's why the Chronicles of Narnia are so obviously a metaphor for Christianity. Um, he, he talks about the, that every human being is immortal, is the, is the word, how he describes them. Uh, they're, and they're going somewhere when they die. And the Christian carries the burden of their neighbor's eternal destiny, if you want to put it that way. Um, and the Christian, um, he doesn't say, this is me paraphrasing, essentially he encourages every Christian to take their neighbor's eternal fate seriously. Because uh, their, their, their glory, that is their destiny, is, is on their shoulder in, in some way, shape, or form. And I, I really think, and this is just uh, Francisco, some would say Disco Francisco's, that's an old Navy term for me, but uh, um, interpretation uh, but I, I, I think it's, it's obvious in, in Lewis's um, everything he does. He's about uh, making the gospel as clear as possible to as many people as possible um, in everything he writes, whether it's children's literature or, or philosophy for a philosophical context and everything in between. Um, a bit more about Lewis's biography. He's, I don't remember exactly what year he was born. I want to say 1898. I might be off. Um, but uh, dies, did you, you all know when he died? There were two other fairly famous people who died in the same, same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated and the same day that Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, uh, died. Um, we know each other. Okay. There's this person right here. I'm like, she looks real familiar. I think we've run into each other in Texas before. Okay. It's weird. <laughs> Um, sorry for the digression. Um, um, oh, so, so he died. Those, uh, I mentioned that because Huxley, some people, like I think it was one of the podcasts out of National Review, somebody was covering Abolition of Man, and they were saying, for our days now, 2022, if you, uh, reading Abolition of Man alongside Brave New World is probably the smartest thing you could do in trying to understand the times, if you're going to read th- this sort of literature. Um, we won't get into that, but... Uh, we won't do that next. It's only three months worth of 
Yeah, that'd be fun. And Brave New World's a lot easier to read. You all know Brave New World. It's sort of like 1984, Fahrenheit 451 genre, dystopian stuff. Um, anyway, that, so Lewis dies in 1963. Uh, he died after, what, he was about 40 years he had been a Christian. Uh, again, he was an atheist before his conversion. Um, he himself said he was, he was uh, the most reluctant convert to Christianity. He was sort of like this philosopher, I think he's still at New York University, Thomas Nagel, who says, while there might be lots of good evidence for God's existence, and while the only way uh, an objective morality makes sense is if there is a God, Nagel says, I don't want there to be one. Because that means all of a sudden I'm accountable for certain things. That was kind of Lewis's position sort of in the 1920s. Um, but uh, eventually he came to a point, he used to, this is super geek stuff. Biographers of Lewis have wrestled with it and debated over it for, for years. I think Alistair McGrath has settled it. But uh, people used to think 1929 is when Lewis converted to Christianity. Um, Lewis himself said it was 1929, and Alistair McGrath did the sort of historical work and said, actually, Lewis, Lewis got it wrong in his own conversion. He, he converted in 1930. Um, who cares? Yeah. Um, but in, in, after his conversion, even before his conversion, uh, C.S. Lewis was a professor, started off as a professor of philosophy, uh, but then transitioned to professor of literature, in particular medieval and Renaissance literature, at the University of Oxford at um, uh, Magdalen College. Uh, and will teach there for decades as a, as a tutor and a don. Do you know those terms? By tutor, we're not talking like the, the Mathnasium or Kumon uh, tutoring centers that we have here, but a tutor at Oxford University is a professor who's, um, who, who may or may not give normal or formal lectures Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or Tuesday and Thursday, but they're a professor who's there to, to guide a small group of students who are studying some particular topic. So it might be something like what they call PP&E, philosophy, politics, and economics. And a student might uh, arrive at Oxford, an undergraduate would arrive at Oxford, they'll have three years ahead of them, they'll be given a list of all the books they should read over the course of those three years, and then they'll be given a list of lectures that people, whoever, whoever it is, it could be anybody from any college, any faculty who's giving a lecture on Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, or Thomas Aquinas, or Martin Luther, or whatever, and the students aren't, interestingly, even to this day, uh, though the American style of education is slowly creeping into Oxford, uh, they still resist it there. Um, as much as they can. Um, you, you, ch you choose as a student with the guidance of your tutor which lectures you're going to attend. The tutor doesn't, doesn't handhold you and make sure you go and lectures, but what the tutor then does, though, is says, okay, so you should probably go, go listen to these lectures. And by the way, uh, in between lectures and after you've woken up from a hard night of parting, you should go to the Bodleian Library and read these three books on Monday. And then at the end of the week, you need to write a 2,000, 3,000-word essay addressing this particular question that has to do with the stuff you've read. And then the tutor will have three, six students, usually no more than six students, will come to their, their quarters at a place like Magdalen College or, or Christ Church at Oxford. Professors there or tutors there um, are given like 
several rooms in these old, you know, we're talking centuries old buildings. Uh, some of these, one of my tutors, uh, Meyer, Henry Meyer Harding was a professor of medieval history. Uh, Coke bottle, thick glasses. Um, I think he was born in the Middle Ages. I mean, he had like medieval tapestries hanging from the wall and just bizarre but awesome and, and so on. But um, you, you walk into these, these rooms and there's thousands of books lining the walls and uh, one, one of my professors had a, had a bunch of like plastic cups with flies flying all around them because all the alcohol had dried and there was sugar in there and piles of books. I mean, just bizarre characters all around Oxford. And I imagine C.S. Lewis was kind of like that, but at the same time, uh, by all accounts, C.S. Lewis was a very jovial, friendly man at the same time. But you go into your, your, your tutorial and you read your paper aloud. And while you're reading your paper aloud, the other students who are sitting in that tutorial uh, will jot down notes and questions that they're going to ask you afterwards. And then you just have this discussion, sometimes friendly, sometimes quite um, heated, over whether what you argued was true or not. Um, Tutors at Oxford will have, they're not like college professors nowadays where you might have hundreds and hundreds of students every year where you're grading scantrons and quizzes and, and those sorts of things, but they might have 30 students total a year. Um, it's a real intimate kind of uh, educational experience. That was Lewis's life. Um, he was in many ways a man of leisure in that he would enjoy his walks with his brother Warney and his friend J.R. Tolkien and other members of what were called the Inklings. Are you all familiar with the Inklings? A group of um, people like Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers, Charles Williams, and there's a handful of others um, that uh, would get together at a place called the Eagle and Child. Locals called it the Bird and Baby a pub. They get together for hours on end, drinking beer, probably warm ales, um, and talking about the latest stuff they're writing. Um, then they go back out on a walk. Um, they sit around and talk, wax eloquent and philosophy all day. And it's a real sort of privileged, interesting life if you're a nerd. Um, so was C.S. Lewis a tutor then? He was a tutor and a don. So a don is sort of like a not just an instructor, but a don is somebody who's what we kind of like somebody who has tenure, who's in a, a personality and a holds a chair there at the University of Oxford. Usually a don is somebody who's been, because Oxford's a, what we would call a public university, though it's very hard to get into for British undergrads. Um, it's, um, you have to be approved by the state to be a don, you know. Uh, there are some positions there, I don't, they were around when Lewis was, in fact, they've been around for decades, or centuries actually, where like the, the Regis chair in church history um, is like a, a chair that the king or queen has to appoint. So it's like, it's heady, heady stuff. Um, but that, that was Lewis's life, his whole life. Uh, he, Tolkien and others, never learned to drive a car. Um, they literally spent, I mean, Lewis was kind of like, you know, the hobbits in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Lewis was kind of like a hobbit. He prefers just to stay in Oxford, do his work at the university, um, but spend most of his time at his home, which sits just outside of Oxford, in a place called the Kilns, 
uh, listening to birds chirp and, and wondering about alternate worlds and whatever else he did. <laughs> um, so a very, it's a rarefied um, environment. At Oxford, at the time that Lewis writes The Abolition Man, first of all, there's a big thing going on behind the scenes, World War II, when he, he gets, he's starting to prepare the, the lectures that will make up The Abolition of Man. Um, the students studying at Oxford, the numbers had dwindled quite a bit because of the war, uh, and still uh, the, the faculty there persisted in teaching. Um, the university, in terms of its the philosophical zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the age at the university, had been taken over by and large uh, by a, a worldview, we could say, or a philosophy, school of philosophy called logical positivism. Um, I'm sure you all think about logical positivism every night before you go to bed. Is it true? <laughs> um, did Wittgenstein get it right? Or... Um, logical positivism is a was it's, it wasn't just an Anglo philosophy. It actually has its roots in Austria, uh, in particular with the Austrian school of economics uh, back in the very early 20th century. Um, people, though, like some of the bigger names, like uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, is one big name that came from there. He was Austrian himself and taught it uh, down at Cambridge. Um, A.J. Ayer would be the really big name who taught at uh, Oxford University when C.S. Lewis was there. In fact, um, uh, Lewis and A.J. Ayer knew each other. I don't know how well, but they knew each other and they knew each other's work. We should, and in many ways, the abolition of man, though it doesn't name A.J. Ayer, it names a colleague who taught down at Cambridge that uh, C.S. Lewis uh, knew well, who was very much like A.J. Ayer, but more of a popularizer of, of logical positivism, a guy named Ivor Richard. Dr. Richards, as, as the abolition of man refers to him. Uh, what is logical positivism? Um, it, in many ways, it's a philosophy of, of language that's concerned with uh, being exact with the, the sentences we use to describe the world. It's in, in also, you could say it's kind of like a philosophy of science. Logical positives in the, in the A.J. Ayer tradition, the Oxford tradition, said everybody, for all, human beings have for centuries, millennia, um, used language, used words and sentences and stories to describe their world. Uh, A.J. Ayer said, when we look closely at, at language, when we look at it down to the level of a sentence, we see that when humans speak about the world they live in, the world that's existed before uh, and everything else, they tend to use three types of sentences. Uh, Ayer said the first type of sentence they'll use is what he called an analytic sentence. These are sentences that are, and this is a big word, I'll, I'll define it in a second, sentences that are tautologies. Self, sentences that are self-evidently true. You don't need to go and do some empirical research to know it's true. So a tautology is a sentence like, all bachelors are unmarried males. You don't need to go to Naperville and knock on every door and take a survey. Hey, are all bachelors unmarried males? Or is there a bachelor here? Oh, you're a bachelor, are you unmarried? You know it without, doing any, without looking at the world. You know by definition that a bachelor is an unmarried male. Those types of sentences are what error or logical positivists called analytic sentences. Uh, 
They're true with 100% certainty. You don't need to do, you don't need to verify whether they're true or not. They're similar to mathematical propositions. Two plus two equals four. Nowadays, I guess it doesn't. It might, it might be five. It just depends on what color your skin is, I guess. Um, <laughs> Oh, that's right. <laughs> I have a brother who's a pastor, but also a nerd, so he studies mathematics. Um, that's a joke, by the way. But he was a math major, and he he tells me this. I don't I don't know anything about mathematics. I'm I've never balanced a checkbook. You don't need to balance them anymore. Um, I'd be a terrible at it anyway. But um, he says that certain basis systems of mathematics, two plus two might not equal four. Is that true? It is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in oh, here we go. Like binary for computers. Oh boy. Well, moving right along. There's three types of people. Let. Those who understand math and those who don't. So. Oh. So anyway, so there's these. Getting back to simpler stuff, tautologies, <laughs> <They're> <laughs> analytic claims that we know by, that are true by definition, but they really don't tell us much about the world, right? They're not really scientific claims. They're just definitional truths. The second type of thing, sentence we, we tend to utter when we're describing things is what error called synthetic uh, claims. These are sentences or propositions or assertions that are about the world that at face value um, are, or, or that are in principle verifiable. Um, they never rise to the level of 100% certainty, but you could know with beyond reasonable doubt, perhaps with 99.9% certainty. Like I could say while I'm looking this way, uh, Pastor Clemmer has a clerical collar on. I think it's true because my memory says he did. Um, but that sentence is it's not true by definition. Oh, I don't know. Do you sleep in a clerical collar? Do you always wear a clerical collar? I have a clerical onesie. That's gross. <laughs> That's worse than my uh, unicorn onesie. That I have. <laughs> Um, but like that, that set, that's making a claim about this, this world here. Uh, it's meaningful if what I said corresponds to the object. So I have to go and verify. Oh, yeah, you've got, it looks like a clerical. We might have to take off your whatever, that sweater or whatever, to really see if it's clerical. It might just be a weird colored T-shirt. Um, but other examples of synthetic claims are... Um, down Roosevelt uh, Road, get go through. The, I recently learned this language: the Hillside Strangler. You get on 290 or the Ike, I think it's called. Get off at Des Plaines. You go north, and you got to do some squiggly stuff. Uh, but you end up eventually at Concordia University, Chicago. You all, pro, pro, you're like, oh, that's probably true. Um, it might be false, though. We'd have to go and verify whether that's true or not. Or if you, and please don't, I'll do it anyway, because I don't think it's illegal. Um, in Krauss 201 at Concordia, Chicago, there's a bottle of Kirkland tequila. 
Um, could be, might not be true, too. How do you know? You could just believe me. Like I said, there is a bottle of tequila. You could be, but whether that's true or not really won't be settled until you see if that statement, there's a bottle of tequila in Krauss 201, if you go and verify it in some way. Now, you could verify it by proxy. You could have a security guard go in there and find it's there and then have whoever is in Kraus 201 and you know, slapped on the wrist tomorrow morning or whatever. But the best way to do it would be to go and see it with your own eyes, to perceive it in some way with your senses. Again, your senses might lie. So it's never 100%. I don't know why I said it again, your senses. I, mean, I didn't say that before. But uh, uh, you, it, it's never going to be 100% certain. It could be you're just, it's wishful thinking that there's a bottle of tequila when you see a bottle of tequila, you know. Um, those are synthetic claims. Those are real propositions of science, according to logical positivists. That's the realm of science. And not just science in a real restrictive sense, but that's the realm of knowledge. If we want to know and, and or know our world, if we want to know it better and really fine-tune our knowledge and our statements and our descriptions of the world, we have to verify, we have to um, see how much our description of the world actually links up to the world itself. Because if you spend... I mean, and this is kind of helpful, right? The logical positivists were not to a man, but by and large, most of them were atheists. A.J. Ayer went to, to his death, even though he had a weird near-death experience a couple years before he died, and he said, oh, it seems there might be something on the other side. He, he still asserted to his death that he was an atheist. He's got a very different picture of the world, where it came from, how, maybe how old it is, uh, what meaning it has, and so on when you compare it to, say, a Christian view of the world or a Inuit view of the world, like an Eskimo view of the world. They can't, they all, con they contradict each other in a, no a number of points. They can't all be true. So how do you know which ones are true or which one is true? You go and verify whether the, the descriptions of the world actually link up to the world itself. Those are synthetic or scientific claims, and they're meaningful. There's a third type of claim, uh, A.J. Ayer argued, or logical positivism argued. These are, are what uh, Ayer called claims that are technically meaningless. These are claims about the world, about the past, or about the nature of things that might seem meaningful, but because they're not in principle verifiable, you can't actually go and check this out to see if it's true or not. Um, because they're not verifiable in any sense, normal sense of the term, they are technically meaningless. They're jibber-jabber. They're claims like, absurd claims like, blue sleeps faster than Thursday. Like, how do you even, that sentence, it seems like it's a sentence. You've got a, a subject and a predicate. But if you look at the words, it just makes no sense. Or, Ayer would say, um, the claim that God exists is technically meaningless. It might be meaningful in, to individual people in an emotional way, um, but it's because it's not verifiable. You can't climb up Jacob's ladder and peer out and past the boundaries of the universe and see if God is out there or not. So for, for error, those sorts of claims, claims of ethics, this is what Lewis is really gonna go after. Um, claims of ethics, uh, another logical positivist you probably, anyway, situate them in that group. A guy named Ludwig Wittgenstein said, propositions of ethics 
have no meaning. They're basically an expression of the way we feel about things. They would have meaning, Wittgenstein said, if we had a word from outside of time and space telling us what is good, true, and beautiful, or what is bad, and good behavior, and so on and so forth. But there is nothing outside. There's no way to verify there's something outside that's revealed him or her or itself to us. So those sorts of claims, and the, the word that logical positivists will use is not theological. They'll use the word metaphysical claims, claims that just can't be verified by physical type of research are technically, according to their, that philosophical tradition, meaningless. And that's what's in the water at the University of Oxford and Cambridge University and most English-speaking universities in the middle of the 20th century. It was on its ascendancy. It's still around today. Um, it, it took a beating in a way like in the last two or three decades of the 20th century by the so-called postmodernists. Uh, but when people realized that postmodernists were kind of crazy, logical positivism kind of came back because it provided some sense of order and, and objectivity. Um, so it's st still around a bit today. Uh, but that's, that's what Lewis is really going after. He's going after a philosophical tradition that's expressed in this book he calls The Green Book, uh, written by Gaius and Titius, right? Those aren't real names. The Green Book is not called The Green Book. It's actually a book called The Control of Language, and it's written by two uh, Oxford graduates uh, who had, had gone off to Australia, I believe, and were teaching at a university. But they were commissioned to write a grammar, a textbook on grammar for what Lewis says in the first sentence, upper form schools. Those are basically what we call high schools. Um, and that in that book is, in many ways, a very popular sort of um, low-level expression of logical positivism that reduces every claim that has sort of, a, that assigns value to things uh, to, to, or credits those claims to being just simply an expression of a person's emotion. So that Pastor Clemmer, if he, are you drinking beer? Finds that beer, beer wonderful. I mean, sublime. Sublime. sublime, sorry, sublime, sublime. I'm not going to lie, I did too. I've used the word, my, not my whole life. I think the first time I used it was when I was three, so there were two years I didn't use it. But, uh, yeah, Though, these, those sorts of things are just, they tell us more about what's going on in his head or his belly than they tell us about any sort of objective value to things or like the waterfall that he uses, or think about music. If you describe music, so I'm the worst person to talk about music, so I can't even, I can play power chords to punk rock songs, and that's it. Um, there is objectively good music. Otherwise, people wouldn't practice, right? Um, now, when we like call something beautiful or, or good, a lot of it, much of it, maybe is is subjective. You know, tr beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? But at the same time, Lewis absolutely believes, and I would say the majority of the tradi Christian tradition for two thousand years, in some way, sense, or form, believes there's sort of an objective scale behind even things like beauty and art. Thank you, Plato. <laughs> so another thing that's in the behind all that, the context of this is 
you, you start to see, you don't start to see, it's in a lot of Lewis's works, uh, a bit of where he leans philosophically. He, one of his, he took three undergraduate degree, uh, majors, what we would call majors. One was in the classics. So he knew the Greek and Roman literature, like no, well, he drops names right and left in the text, not always from Greek and Roman authors, but uh, if he has to choose a tradition uh, between like an Arist you know, Aristotle or Plato, uh, Aristotle being more of the empirical guy and Plato being more of the high-minded uh, philosopher who thinks rationally and, and logically about everything, uh, Lewis is gonna always prefer Plato. In fact, you see it in the last, is it the last battle, I think, in the Chronicles of Narnia, where, um, oh, I've, I should know, but I'm, I'm, I have Narnia fatigue after having read all seven of them in the last month. Um, um, the professor, Diggory, whatever, you know, Professor Kirk, you know, the, the guy, do you all know the Chronicles of Narnia? The professor says, it's all in Plato. It's all in Plato. You all should have understood all this. It's all in Plato. Lewis, in many ways, kind of feels that way himself, and he's not, and not without good reason. Some of the great figures in church history, like St. Augustine, uh, said, Plato is a friend. He's not a Christian, but he is a friend to Christianity. There's, his philosophy gets, gets you somewhere. It doesn't get you to Christianity. certainly doesn't get you to salvation, but gets you somewhere more than other philosophies do. Uh, it primes, it preps you a bit. Because uh, in Plato's philosophy, do you, you know, like um, other books, I'm sure you, like logical positivism at night before you go to bed thinking about that, you probably also think about Plato's Republic and the <laughs> allegory of the cave and, and the, the world of forms and all these sorts of things. Um, uh, that, that's, that's Lewis, and for many, even Martin Luther, the guy who can rail against philosophy out of one side of his mouth, on the other side of his mouth, he can talk about how Plato is much better than Aristotle, because Plato recognizes that there's more to reality than just physical stuff. So, I've been talking way too long, haven't I? 747. Should we pause for a second? Are there... So, so yeah. who, who, who taught Lewis then all of this stuff? Did he just read a lot of, well, you know, when he converted, for him to sort of so, you know, get all this, you know, how did he, how yeah. did he learn it all? Um, from, from, he was an avid reader his whole life, and he read the classics. Mm -hmm. He read what we'd call maybe great books today. Um, at home, books were everywhere. He went off to like what we kind of like a boarding school situation after his mother dies. He's and is um, taken under the wing of of excellent teachers who have his the development of his soul, if you will, as their best in or their highest interest. When he gets to Oxford University as an undergraduate, so that would be like right before World War One. He'll have to break, take a break in his undergraduate education so he can go serve in World War One. Um, he'll get he'll be injured um, and, and go back to Oxford and finish up his graduate undergraduate work and then begin teaching right away um, he had all these professors so I don't I don't have the names off the top of my head but some of them are quite famous classicist people who whose world is Greco Roman medieval and classic English so sort of at disposal there to chat with, I presume. oh yeah yeah oh yeah but, you know, but, don't, you, don't you almost want to hold the reverence, though, the people that converted him? So, 
Um, the Holy Spirit converted him, just, so, just to lay my Lutheran credentials out there. <laughs> but, but God used certain medium, or certain um, people in, in vocation uh, to, to um, speak the gospel to him, to help the gospel, help the gospel make sense to him. One of those people is J.R.R. Tolkien. And I mean, there were several occasions that he recounts that kind of led to it, but eventually, there, there's a famous walk at Magdalen College in their gardens. It's called Addison's Walk, where, where Lewis finally said, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. It's true. Uh, and he had to bend the knee, right? And that was all, it was over beers and bacon and brie sandwiches and bangers and mash and all that other stuff they eat in pubs there, fish and chips. Uh, being argued, uh, if you will, into the face, so to speak, right? Obviously, it's not that, you know, it's the Holy Spirit, okay? There again, I'm Holy Spirit. <laughs> People like Dorothy Sayers and J.R. Tolkien and the other members of the Inklings were there um, carrying the burden of his glory before his conversion. So uh, I think Tolkien probably is the most significant. Uh, influence behind Perhaps it wasn't a defining moment as much as it was. Right. Uh, it's not like Lewis or uh, uh, Martin Luther who has this power experience. Right. Some people think because he one, on one occasion refers to the outhouse that it happened like he was on, literally on the toilet and all of a sudden he understands the righteousness of God. Um, Lewis, it was a slow process. He even says he went from atheism to theism, so he started to believe that something higher exists, some sort of designer or creator of, in, of the vaguest sense has to exist per force of all the evidence. There's no way to make sense of it. Um, and then after that, he, he's persuaded in various ways that, that that designer or creator of the universe has actually made himself known in a very particular way to the personal work of Jesus. So, there are lots of folks with stories like that. Another famous Oxonian uh, was uh, Anthony Flew. He was a philosopher. He died maybe 10, 15 years ago now. Was the leading advocate for philosophical atheism uh, at the sort of like university level and was never the kind of reptile that Richard Dawkins and that company are. Um, always interested in philosophy, pursued wisdom, and took it as he puts it in his autobiography right before he dies. My, my whole um, goal as a philosopher over the course of like a 50-year career was to follow the evidence where it leads. He says, up until this point, so this is, he's writing around 2003-ish, I think. Up until this point, I thought, I didn't think there was enough weight to the evidence behind the claim that Christians make that God exists. There was some evidence, but it wasn't strong enough as the atheist evidence. You don't need the atheist claim, Flew wrote. You didn't need um, God to explain how things came into existence or how life became so, you know, different. There's so much biodiversity. Um, then uh, Flew says, but after studying um, genetics and DNA for a bit, just for a little bit, I've realized that there's no way to account for that order of information in every single cell. There's got to be some sort of designer to it. Uh, that, that's kind of that's Lewis's very inductive approach to it. Slowly led, kicking and screaming, the most reluctant convert. That was 
Anthony Flew? That was Anthony Flew, but Lewis, in many ways, his, they have similar autobiographies. Yeah. Lewis uh, studied the classics, and Lewis Marcos wrote, um, I think, the myth, myth made realities. Mm -hmm. And those are all the books that C.S. Lewis studied. And yeah. I think it's in your Christianity where he's like, it's just pesky. I mean, it's there in every yeah. book he's reading, but there's something there. Yeah, so maybe we should talk a bit more about this. Is Lewis, you, know, you said he studies the classics. He, Lewis not only knows, but absolutely loves pagan mythology, loved, past tense, he's dead, loved pagan mythology. Whether it be the old Norse myths of the, the Vikings or Greco-Roman secret mystery religions, uh, Persian, you know, like Persian Mithraism or the Egyptian fertility cults of a dying and rising deity and so on. Um, Lewis was at a time when um, historians hadn't yet proved that all those sorts of dying and rising myths actually post-date Christianity. Most were under the assumption that there was a well-worn uh, literary tradition of those sorts of myths before the rise of Christianity. And they were arguing before, back in those days that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are just riffing, if you will, off of the Egyptian myths and so on and so forth. And Lewis kind of said, not so fast. There are all these myths of rising and, or dying and rising gods and so on and so forth. Um, and, but, but the thing that marks Christianity as different is sort of like what Second Peter says. This is not a cleverly devised myth. This is the myth made fact. And he'll go on and say, it makes sense that in sort of the natural order, maybe God in a very convoluted, hidden way has put it in people's mind, or, or people just always, you know, they have that, uh, what do they say, that God-shaped hole in their heart, right? They, they, they need some sort of promise that there is an eternal life after this, and so they come up with all these mythologies. And, and Lewis argued that it makes sense that all that stuff is there. Uh, God put it there in a sort of a natural revelation, uh, but made it very clear just who that dying and rising God was. And is uh, in, in, in Jesus. Right, right. And the, the need for sacrifice. Yeah, a whole, whole lot. You know, these, these old pagan mythologies have a lot of, there's some, it's those people out there who claim, oh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just ripped off them, ripped them off, um, and, you know, just gave it more of a concrete historical flavor. Their argument isn't totally stupid. Because there are a lot of really interesting parallels. Like Persian Mithraism has a ton of really fascinating ones. You've got a, a, a deity named Mithras who's born of a virgin who has a band of followers, uh, who was born on December 25th, by the way, um, who performed miracles, who died and rose again. Um, now, I mean, that's uncanny, right? And a lot of folks have said, oh, see, this religion's like 4,000, 5,000 years old. Um, clearly, Christians must have copied them. Well, the interesting thing is all that, those parallels between Mithraism and Christianity, they don't appear anywhere in the record of Mithraism until about the 3rd century AD. So 200 plus years after Christianity, when Mithraism and Christianity were like the if you will, the mortal theological enemies in the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And Mithra Followers of Mithraism actually used, borrowed from Christianity and put it into the Mithras uh, mythology. But that's all kind of newish stuff 
uh, that uh, historians have kind of uncovered. They didn't know that in C.S. Lewis's day, I don't think. I might be wrong, but I'm sure Pastor Conroe will tell me in an email late tonight. <laughs> Make me feel bad. <laughs> Any other questions or comments before we... Yeah. We can get into the book when we come back, the actual book itself. So there's, there's a couple questions. To, so just don't stop talking. Just change the nature of your conversation to uh, what you found to be maybe interesting about this work, because we're gonna, we're gonna, Dr. Francisco is gonna kick off some, some more uh, topics here. But if there is like some key, uh, you're, something you found to be very interesting, or a question, if it rose a question, you're like, well, if that's true, then what does it mean for this? Or uh, if there's some kind of a basic question like that that you might have had to bring to the text, or something you found to be very interesting. Uh, one of the great, a great point that he made that you found, like for me, it's the, it was the just the, the title of the chapter, the simple one, Men Without Chests, like the idea of, of the something about the uh, the heart being this thing that, that makes us not an animal, right? So it's not just the intellect or the the gut that drives us, but something has to connect the two. And then uh, what are the implications of that for ethics and just living? So maybe spin your conversation that way. Just come up with one or two things, and then we'll kick it to the group here in a second. All right, so let's hear it. Let's, uh, well, what did what, you guys come up with over here? What's maybe like interesting question you might want to bring to the text? A question to bring to the text or an interesting point you found? Like at the end, so so for one, the the impact on education, yeah. that really that is what what a gift of COVID. I mean, to say that in a, in a real way to to have so many parents made aware of what their kids are learning, which before they were just kind of whatever, and just for so many years blindly just not thinking about it, rolling their eyes at at. Any, any conspiracy theorists that they would be pushing agendas in the school and then actually seeing it for themselves that, and that and those are in the subjects that are, are obvious history we would say maybe the, the, the subjects that would that would clearly be pushing it that could push agendas would be history um, literature you can you can really sculpt a mind by what the kids are reading in literature obviously religion but grammar math uh, and, and grammar seem to be somewhat innocent because grammar functions like math in a way, you know, subject plus verb, predicate, right? Um, and yet what Lewis is pointing out here is that, no, it's not. It, you can still do damage in these subjects. So the worldview comes into play. So certainly, yeah. And then that's at the start. And then what he feared at the end, at least of chapter one, we have, we still have two more chapters. He, he gets much less depressing. <laughs> not true. He gets, it gets... It's pretty rough in the next two chapters, but the, by the end of chapter one, the end of this chapter is, it's the idea of we want, um, as he says, we, we, we gild and expect the gildings to, to be fruitful. So he's a horse analogy. So it's, it is, we want, I, this might, I don't want to be offensive, but I, I can't help myself. Because <laughs> of my company. You think... <laughs> So, so, so think about like the, what, what we've done to the Boy Scouts of America or what, what's happened to the Boy Scouts of America 
And yet, do we not all want an army that's like G.I. Joe's that can fight for us on the front lines and just and men who are who are men? And yet, at the same time, we want to kind of like effeminize men. And, and so, not we, so the culture is changing men to be uh, like anything that's historically, historically mascul- masculine is shameful or is offensive, right? Toxic masculinity, exactly. And yet, who do you run to when, you need, when, when we need defense, right? So we want, so his, his example was honor and uh, valor and, or really it's uh, courage. What's the word he's, um, something worth dying for. Something, so how are you going to encourage young men to go die in battle? So we're, we're taking, we're ripping away from any reason for dying in battle and then expecting them to be willing to die in battle. So that's the fear. One of the fears that he had. Yeah, Rich, what do you got? I'm compelled to tell you, though, the mission of the Boy Scouts. <laughs> oh, Rich defending. It's not the Boy Scouts' fault. Rich, I agree, Rich. Warriors, moral and ethical decision So take the Boy Scouts out of it. I should have said Boy Scouts. I knew I should have. Looked around the room before I said Boy Scouts. <laughs> but still, that's the idea. I mean, just think of the, the shift in, in the cultural view of of what is, what is a soldier, what is a man, what is those, and that's just in regarding one topic of masculinity. So, so that's the one the topic here. No, Dave? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I think it was just a week or two ago that I heard a, a very troubling story about, I think it's Google Docs, that is now going to start prompting you as you're writing a document and putting gender-neutral suggestions in there. If you type, you know, him, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and a lot of different words, like, you know, Instead of a postman, it's going to be you know a mail carrier. So they're, they're they're trying to control the language because a lot of people say yeah that sounds good. I'll just put I'll just let them put that in there. So that they're trying to change language, not even subtly anymore. Right. So so the so an impact of that to use his to stick with his like picture of the the castrated horse. So castrating, and and wanting the wanting the the gildings to to be fruitful. It's like. We, we're ripping away, the culture ripping away traditional family or gender, right. but then, all, then being shocked that families are falling apart and that the, the society is crumbling. So it's like you can't have it both ways. Right. Yeah, so, uh, was that, you guys come up with something else over here on this table for, quite, yeah, Tom. Uh, Lewis is basically talking about Statements of value are the, the third kind of statement that Dr. Francisco mentioned. These are unverifiable, therefore unimportant. They're just a reflection of how you feel about something. Well, it seems like nowadays, that's what this is the influence of postmodernism happening after Lewis wrote all this. Feelings are great, right? They aren't unimportant. They're probably more important than anything objective. So we've really taken that in the opposite direction. That's it. Yeah. So personal feelings, um, for you need to you need to validate my personal feelings about myself, whatever they are, um, and that because that has to do with my my identity. So if you if you don't validate me, then you've offended me. And really, I can, I should be able to sue you if you're not validating my my feelings about myself. That's still that. That's that step away from an objective. Is the, is the waterfall beautiful in itself or not? In the same way as if I feel like I'm, I'm a, um, a, 
a woman, right, and you disagree with me, you've offended me. Well, so there's no objective truth about me. Um, yeah, so, so, our, so I was looking at our, I don't know how, I'll let Francisco connect the dots on this later. I'm just trying to get the, stir the pot here a little bit. James, you have anything? Are you texting me a comment right now? <laughs> James, if you don't know James, he's our live stream guru. If not for James, all those times you've been sick and watching TV from home would not be happening if not for James. So be sure to thank him. <laughs> uh, anything over here? Is it from the Miller Light Table? <laughs> Crickets. From the back? Well, we, you know, I, I, I remark more than anything uh, on how it seems like you're taught to certain behaviors. But what, what, what I read into this, what brought to my mind when I was reading this was how in some cultures people are thought to think that uh, pickled herring is the most greatest food that's ever existed. In other cultures, you, know, you smell pickled herring and you almost throw up. And, and there are foods like that around the world, and it's all that these are different feelings that people have, and their idea of what is sublime or majestic, in some respects, is what's taught to them. Very good. So this is part of the question that I bring to the text, and I think it's, help, I think it's a helpful um, point. So there's, there's certain, there's some, there are subjective opinions about lots of different things, but there's, then there's subjective-ism. Um, but yeah, so... We can, we can teach people to think a certain way. We, we, can teach, we can teach people that there is a right and a wrong, a good and an evil. In our, little, in our little enclave or our group, we can teach this is good, this is bad. That doesn't necessarily prove that there's an objective good and bad. Just like in Sweden, you can eat that nasty fish out of a can or whatever, the, whatever your lutefisk or stuff like that. Like there's weird stuff that you can, have, you can personally like. Um, but that doesn't mean it's objectively good and true and right. Um, but there's some things that are. Right. So, because that was the part that that was driving me crazy, because he specifically was addressing beauty. And so I, I was thinking about the arts almost right off the bat, but you can look at, at just nature. Right, you go to the Grand Canyon, tourists from all over the world go to the Grand Canyon and they're awestruck. It is an awe-evoking sight. And people don't go there and go look at the big hole. The but they're supposed to go there and be awestruck because they're supposed to be awestruck. Everyone's told them they're supposed to be awestruck, so they're not yes, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm just joking. If you were sold that much and you go <coughs> there. So I want to I want to shift it. Down. That, that I think that's so. Let's shift it from the Grand. The Grand Canyon is an easy one. Shift it to. So I think we can come back to the Grand Canyon, but shift it over to the Chicago Museum of Art. Yeah, modern art. So like the modern art, contemporary artwork. So you walk in, so you see like Renaissance artwork that's actually well done, and it's and it's and it's depicting some great stuff in multiple layers, and it's beautiful. And there's like a, a pile of Play-Doh with a plastic fork in it, and that's supposed to be art. Yes, that's exactly where my thoughts are. So like, but then, but then what are they telling me is that, well, it's, it is, it's no. beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It's totally subjective. No. And yet we're looking at this saying, no, no, there's a way that this is obviously just 
silly putty with a fork in it. And that's, you don't look at Rembrandt, you don't look at Caravaggio, you don't look at Durer or Michelangelo or Da Vinci and go, that is on the same plane as something in MoMA or the, the, the golden toilet or the, the, the cross in urine or anything. Or, or to jump out of art to the, back to the Grand Canyon, like you had said. Like there's an obvious wow beauty about the Grand Canyon that you don't have at Starved it's Rock. universally held. <laughs> And then to get to the objective part, completely, if you want to say any of that's subjective, I would semi-yield to that begrudgingly. But when God created the world, you go through the creation story, and you get, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And that's how you know that there is good outside of But So I think, and this is where, as, as Christians, to bring it to the Bible for just a second so Chris doesn't get mad at me, um, so we, we would say, without hesitation, that there is an objective truth of, of, in, of what is good and, and right and wrong, and that is the Bible, certainly. Uh, Lewis is trying to engage in what we would call, from the Christian perspective, natural law, as he, as he calls the Tao, the Tao. So, um, but yeah, once we, once we crack open the Bible, then we're all able to quickly and easily say there is a good and, a, and an evil, a right and a wrong. But it, we're, we're trying to, this is our context today, is it not? We're trying to make a case for good and evil without having to use the Bible. We certainly want to have the Bible, but the Bible's main purpose is actually salvation. If we're only using the Bible as a, as a guidebook for right and wrong, then we've turned salvation into a, well, it's what the Pharisees did, right? We were using it into a, into a law to beat people over the head with. But it's still right and wrong, good and evil. So we have that. But as Christians, we can also make the case that it's not just on the Bible, but it is written on our hearts, written in creation. If there is an object of good, true, and beautiful, um, which is, Lewis is saying is the Tao. And I wanna, let's, finish, let's finish going around the room real quick and then I'll pass it to Francisco before we run out. Well, this is what the way that um, mo- many of your, ch- your children have told me of what they're learning. I only can speak for Niqua. What they teach in uh, religious or world, world religions at Niqua, it's because imagine that, imagine that classroom, right? It's tall grass in Niqua, so it's like 75% Muslim now. <laughs> uh, so you've got a room made up of lots of different religions. And so the point of the class is all religions are equally true in the sense that they're equally unverifiable. So there's not a truth. We all just need to get along. So all religions are equally good in the sense that what's true for you is good for you. And so let's study each religion on its own and just for, what, for the value that it is and kind of you can apply it to yourself. But to, to jump and say that there's any kind of objective truth like the, the christian truth claim would be jesus came into into our actual history at a specific time in a specific place through verifiable events right so it's either true or it's not and if it's true then judaism and islam are def- obviously false and vice versa so they can't all be true at the same time but that conversation is not so they don't want to go down that road because it's potentially controversial so the, the operating mindset is like it's whatever's good for you works for you, but that bleeds into all the other all the other subjects, which makes us right for like we get into his, like the history stuff today. We're, we're always questioning of reliability of uh, can we trust the history that's been passed down to us? I don't know. Uh, they're not asking is it verifiable? Is it actually verifiable history? It's 
Well, no, it's a skewed view of history because of your perspective. So tear down the monument. Yeah, good. Anything over here? Chris, you had something? Yeah. But so, then that's, so Lewis is making that point that um, these, so these kids, these, these are high school kids for his context who are reading this book. But like in the, in the, in the moment, they're, they're, all they're learning is they're memorizing their stuff and learning their, you know, checking their boxes and taking their tests. But in the long run, they're, they're learning that their emotions don't actually, their judgment of what is good and bad is irrelevant. And they don't realize that that's a long-term impact of what they're being taught. And so he makes that analogy of like these kids, it's like coming back from the dentist and your teeth haven't been touched. Right. Instead, you've been taught about, they call it do, bimetal, bimetallism or yeah. the two metal system. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, so these kids are supposed to be learning grammar mm-hmm. and they're not learning grammar at all. Mm-hmm. So good, excellent. Well, I, I just wanted to kind of like get you guys the opportunity to talk a little bit about it. I'm gonna kick it back over to to Dr. Francisco to go through kind of the main themes and then the application. Um, and, and we'll can keep the conversation going. If you get ideas or pushback on the text, please. A couple things I, I've observed or heard. On the issue of, like, is there not object, is sub, sublimity, I think that's the way you would say it, objective or not. I think that's, Lewis isn't really, he's just using that, the waterfall is sublime and that, as an example. And we just last, oh, you just mentioned Pastor Clemmer. Lewis's big concern here, I think, is, and I might not be right, just don't say it out loud if I am, um, is he sees that this is part of a larger problem. Um, in part, he, he's, he's going after this green book. He, at first, he's like kind of different. He doesn't want to really go after these these guys and these two authors in the book in particular, but he kind of towards the end he's like I'm I'm gonna clock them. Um, he sees a radical change in education, um, but beyond that, he Lewis is sort of I th- I'm fairly confident in saying this thinks that let's say Western civilization though he doesn't use that term it has is changing and has pretty much changed radically. Um, that's when when you when you read Lewis and his reflections on on history or something, he thinks that the world in let's say around 1900, that the biggest change in the world did not happen in 1 A.D. when Jesus was born or 33 A.D. when he was crucified and, and raised from the dead. The the most radical change that has happened over the course of human recorded human history took place right around the age of Charles Darwin and, and thereafter. Um, and the, what he finds in the Green Book is just a, a sort of a small little example, a symptom of something much more radical that's happened. Where, there, where and this, as he puts it, this is, I, I don't know if page numbers will all line up here, but on page 25, towards the end of Men Without Chess, the, the first chapter, he says, the operation of the Green Book and its kind, other books like it, is to produce what may be called men or maybe we'll say persons to not offend the pastor, men without chess. Uh, to produce, he's, he's worried that this type of philosophy will prevail and either you're going to be a head on a stick, like a super rationalist, like a logical positivist, or a hyper subjectivist, somebody who's just simply moved by their emotions. There's no middle ground of people who can reconcile the rational world with the world of aesthetics and, and beauty and, and so on and, and so forth. For, for Lewis, 
a man with a chest, a person with a chest, as he looks back at Western civilization in particular. But he's, he's no, um, as, as I oftentimes got accused of it at, at Irvine, he's no ethnocentrist or something like that. It's just he's most familiar with Western civilization. But he would, by extension, say, Chinese civilization has this and other civilizations. But in Western civilization in particular, and this is the real context, he is worried that Western, that Western civilization is lost. I think, if I can just point, my mom said never point at people because I don't know your name. Um, when you said um, something like, uh, um, we can't stand by and let this stuff happen, I'm going to, indeed, um, I'm going to quote, uh, if you've heard of Jordan Peterson, he's sort of a popular philosopher. He was a psychologist who recently resigned from his tenured post at University of Toronto because he's sick and tired of all the political correctness and so on and so forth. He says, it's bad, but it's worse than you think. The war has been lost, and we're on the losing side. Uh, Lewis was sensing that in his day and age. He writes it, he starts, so these are three lectures. He was invited to University of Durham, um, third oldest university in England, to give a series of lectures for, a, it's like a, a sponsored lectured series uh, that always, that went back decades Famous people gave lectures in that, that series. He's invited in 40, I think it was 43 is when he gives them. He writes these three papers and quite literally reads them out. And this first one, Men Without Chest, is simply his assessment of the problem. Um, again, it's, not, it's right in the context of, of World War II. He knows full well, I think, that if you get rid of any sort of objective foundation to values... Um, and he know, also knows full well that there is lots of subjectivity. There are lots of, you know, there is, there is some truth to beauty is not high in the, of the beholder in some sense, right? He knows that. But if you get rid of this notion that, there's an ob, that there, there is in some way an objective foundation to things, values and morality and, and so on, you've lost everything. You will not, he doesn't know what the, the result of the war is going to be. But a year and a half later or so, when World War II comes to an end, and then shortly thereafter, the Nuremberg trials take place, and the Nazi war criminals are put on trial, and they, their lawyer argues that, it, and I think it was the opening statements, says, let's be real. The only reason why we're on trial is because we lost the war. It's not that we did anything wrong. Because we all know there's no objective foundation to values and morality. Lewis knows full well, if you get rid of that foundation, there is, it's a moral free-for-all. Um, so I hate to be a pessimist, and may, hopefully I'm wrong, but I've got kids who are in public school and even at a place like Wheaton South. It's, it's shocking um, what they're being taught and the, the way that language has been shanghaied. The Word of God is extremely powerful. We all know that. But words themselves are powerful. Language shapes how we view reality. Um, I don't... I shouldn't, well, I'll say it. Um, I'm not like a big fan of like developmental psychology and all those sorts of things. Um, but and anthropologists and stuff, they do useful stuff to be sure, but it's, the field is so weird these days, it's hard to take them seriously. But they have a point. Even from a very early age, as kids, you know, one, two-year-olds start to learn, as they learn words and put sentences together, they're not just learning how to communicate. A world is being created in their head. 
Um, and this book, the green book, the control of language, um, is, is, he's not going after that specifically. It's a symptom of a much bigger problem. We've, they've changed the way we view the world. And he doesn't say it this way, but he is very, in that particular context, he knows full well there is no reason to stand up to Nazis if this becomes the norm. Um, and in many ways, I don't, I don't know that this is a, that history is repeating itself now from 1940s or whatever. I don't think history repeats itself really. It, it's a straight line as far as I know. I'm not a Hindu. I'm a Westerner, so it's, it's linear. Um, but um, there are elements of this, what he's going after here, that are very true today. Uh, but then there's this additional thing, I think, Pastor, you were talking about where, and this is, maybe this would be another great book, is... Uh, um, the Making of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, where he argues, the very beginning of the book, he says, if, you, if I were to go home from college when I was a teenager, and he's probably in his 60s now, and told my grandpa that I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, my grandpa would have laughed at me thinking I was kidding. Um, he wouldn't have laughed at me because he was being mean or anything like that. The sentence just wouldn't have made sense to him. Um, then Truman goes on and goes, but the, the sentence has a lot of meaning to people today because we've been, there's been this sort of language has been shanghaied uh, by these cultural responsive educators and so, you know, or critical Marxists, you know, all the stuff you hear about in the news, the critical theory people, the postmodernists, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so... so the problem is much worse than what C.S. Lewis was dealing with. But I would, I would argue, thinking as a, as a historian, that this was the cracking opening, the cracking, cracking open of the door to this hyper-subjectivity such that every individual defines what's reality for themselves, and you have to respect everybody's view. Um, the irony and, of that philosophy, though, is that it's subjective in itself, trying to be objective. Yeah. What's your point? <laughs> You're thinking a little critically, a little logically. You know, um, it's all self-refuting. It's sort of like the post. There's a lot of postmodernism around still today. The the basic claim of the postmodernist. Somebody used the term out here earlier. The basic claim of the postmodernist is that there is no absolute or no objective truth which is a really interesting truth claim. Another way to rephrase that sentence is it's absolutely true or objectively true that there is no absolute or objective truth. Um, but we're past um, um, those, are, those are old values. That's what Lewis would call the old western person's view of things. Old Western man is it? He, he Lewis at one point calls himself a dinosaur uh, for his his beliefs. Probably beliefs not too different than what you and I think about things. I think our kids think of us that way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Doctor, the president of uh, Concordia, Chicago. He and I know each other for have known each other for some time. So we have interesting text conversations, and you know, we have, both have kids that are roughly the same age, and. And yeah, our kids think we're, you know what, what bat, you know what, crazy. And, and we're they're dinosaurs. Gonna, they're going to think that about that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Their kids are going to yeah, think that yeah, about that. And yeah. I just wonder, you know, how, how yeah. 
how fast this is, yeah. is moving. I mean, for yeah. their kids to think they're that yeah. hard to imagine. Yeah, it's, it's it is hard to imagine how what what else, what else what's next. Like, but doesn't that get to the essence of our Lutheranism that the Bible is our fundamental source of truth? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to. I mean, it's all in Plato. I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis here in the Chronicles of Narnia. Long before the uh, the New Testament was written. Plato, in a work called Phaedo, that describes Socrates' last hours. You know, Socrates accused of causing the youth of Athens to run wild and stuff, so he had, he had a choice. You've got to either go, you're, you're guilty of this. You're either going to go into exile, or you need to drink hemlock poison and commit suicide. He opts for the latter. He's given some time to hang out with his buddies, which they're Greek, so God knows what they were doing, but... You know, they're, they're hanging out, and they're, um, Plato records the conversations they have. Presumably it's recording it. And they have, the friends, they have a, a bit of a dialogue, perhaps a debate over what's going to happen to Socrates when he dies. Is he, is he going to go into the ground and take a long dirt nap? Worms will crawl in, worms will crawl out and play pinochle in his snout. Is that it? Or is, yeah, his body's going to go into the ground, but his soul's going to, Go on and transmigrate and, and live for forever. And somebody interjects. His name was Simeus. I have no idea who this guy was. He goes, isn't, it, isn't this in conversation interesting? Because we really can't know. And then he said, and this is the, the, the million-dollar clause in the, the, that his, his uh, speech. He says, we can't know unless we had a uh, logu theu, unless we had a word from God. Now, they didn't think there was a word from God, but Plato had it right, and the, the, the great tradition in Western philosophy, up until the rise of like logical positivism, always has said that philosophy, at best, can speculate about things beyond, metaphysics. Um, if you want to be able to talk about these hidden things, what Luther would call the hidden God or the hidden reality, um, you got to have a revelation from that, that reality. you got to have a revelation from God. And back to your point, thank God we have one. And we have one that's qualitatively different than all the other traditions out there that claim to have a revelation from God. In that, the Christian claim is in principle verifiable, and even stronger than that, and this might be a little shocking, it's all, it can be, Christianity can be tr- proven false. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we believed a lie. We're the most pitiable of all people because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Other religions, there's a few exceptions, but most of them just assert that they're true. And the way you know it's true is just you got to believe it's true, like this circular kind of logic. Christianity says something totally different. Lewis in Mere Christianity drives this point home in the second uh, book or chapter on that. Um, um, well, the apostles did as well. Paul says at Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 31, as he's talking to Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. So the, the positivists in the ancient world, they weren't really positivists, but he's, after he gives his sermon, when they've requested that he speak to them about Christianity, he says, and God has given proof of all of this by raising his son from the dead. And that, that makes 
all the difference. And that's, that's, a, that's not just a Lutheran point, but Lutheran, of course we're going to say this, uh, but Lutherans do it best with our, with our Christ-centered theology. We don't get, to, I mean, we, we could certainly talk about God's sovereignty and so on and so forth, but we're not, like they do in the Reformed tradition, for example, if I can just punch a boogeyman for a second. Um, but our conversation is almost, and our theology is built around Jesus, not about some abstract concept of God and his sovereignty. We believe in his God and his sovereignty, but it's not the center of our, our view of things. Back to the text, though. <laughs> Sorry. How much time do we have? Well, we have a whopping five, nine five minutes. minutes if you guys have to go and have a so just to, to pull it out of the, the well, Rich thankfully pulled it out of the depressing downward spiral that thank you, Rich. Spoke like a true congregational chairman. <laughs> <laughs> so why would why would um, C. S. Lewis bother writing this? It was simply depressing. What's he trying to accomplish? So, Lewis sees himself as a custodian of Western civilization. Like he, like I sound like a Californian. He totally bra. Um, he, <laughs> it's nine o'clock, almost nine o'clock. It's, it's late. Um, he felt there was hope, right? What he 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 did. Like he, you don't see it in this chapter yet, right. but he he's cert, I mean, he's a Christian. Right. Christians are hopeful. And Christians know also not to get too worked up. Christians are not surprised that things are going to hell in a handbasket, whether it's 1930s and 40s Germany or 21st century America. Why would any of this stuff? I mean, it's surprising as parents and things like that because it's so bonker. It seems so bonkers to us. But why wouldn't depraved people come up with wild things like that? And read world history and. And probably many of you are aware of things. Things could get much worse. Yeah. I think that's what he was worried about. Yeah, he sees it. It could. He and he doesn't. Again, he doesn't know if the Nazis are going to win the war. No, and he wouldn't um, know what was going on yet either. Yeah. But there's a part that says that values are subjective and trivial. Um, I don't know what page it's on. My book's going to be completely different. But um, when he says that. If values are subjective, then morals become non-existent. We wind up living in a in an autocratic pseudo-scientific mm-hmm. dystopia, and and he didn't want to do that. He didn't mm-hmm. want to live there. None of us want to live there. Yeah, and so he he's doing it. He he's holding out hope that. He's sort of like, I think it was either Russell Kirk or William F. Buckley who says a conservative is somebody who stands athwart history and yells, stop, you're heading too quickly down this really bad path. That's, that's C.S. Lewis. Yeah. He's, he's doing within his vocation all he can do to yell, stop. Um, and he's also, even though he says, I think it's in this, this chapter where he says, I never really... I don't really like the company of children or whatever. How are you? It's funny. I mean, I feel the same way, but uh, um, he, he really does care about, I mean, he chose a, a book for not kids, but, you know, teenagers. He, he knows full well, and he even quotes, I think it's Confucius. I, maybe it's the, it's the epic graph of the whole book. The master said, this is from Confucius Analects, so it's like 5th century BC text. It's, a, it's like one of the canonical texts of Chinese civilization. The master said, that's 
uh, that he who sets to work on a different strand destroys the whole fabric. He's, get, he's getting to what the point what Lutherans would, or at least Luther would say, is that there are three basic estates that hold any civilization together. Uh, there's the political estate, the religious estate. The first estate, though, the thing that is crucial for civilization being sane is the family, the domestic estate. And I think, again, this is an interpretation, but uh, the reason why he's, he's dealing with a topic, his example is like a, youth, you know, a book written for youth and so on, is he knows that, and this is super cliche, but the children are the future, right? We should break out in song. There's some song or song, right? But, so he's, again, he's, he's a custodian of Western civilization. He's trying to keep it. He's trying to persuade whoever's going to listen to him at Durham University, and then it gets published thereafter. Um, um, let's rethink this. Uh, this won't go well for us. And we'll see. After, when we get into book two, he starts, everything's pretty negative now. He's going to start working in a positive way. Uh, are you for the Tao and, and, and so on. So can you give um, a glimpse of the next two chapters? Well, I haven't read them yet. <laughs> uh, the next is, is his case for a natural law. I mean, he's already started to do that when he introduces that Hindu concept. So what is natural law? Natural law is, well, from the, the Christian tradition, the very specific Christian tradition is what Paul talks about, that thing that's written on every human heart in Romans chapter 2. Um, you know, when Paul says, even pagans people who don't have a book, if you will, that lists out what, what's good, uh, they know, just by their actions, they know that there is a, 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 what's, there is a right, an objective right or an objective good. Yeah. Uh, in the broader Western tradition, you know, going before Paul, you go to, to Aristotle and Plato and others, they believed in natural law as well, as, as does classic Chinese civilization and Hindu civilization, that while the details are always different, and there's lots of disagreement over those particulars, there's always a sense of right and wrong in every civilization. Um, even in our bonkers world, there's a sense of right and wrong. It's just been totally skewed. Uh, you just can't get away from it. And that, that, that in very basic form, is, is natural. So he's going to make a case for that. Uh, then the last, what is he called the last chapter? Is it just called the abolition of man? Yeah. He's going to kind of try to, he's going to bring it all together and make a, an argument for a reclamation, if you will, or a, what's he, reproachment of, of um, civilization away from barbarism. That ultimately, I think in a nutshell, what he's, he's trying to persuade people from, though he doesn't use the term, is to persuade Western civilization from uh, embracing the philosophy or the worldview that would that would not could provide no check against barbarism. You know, um, bar, you know, just sort of you know barbarism like. Uh, so he this is not a work of Christian theology really. Right. It's so you know what you I heard you read mere Christianity and when Lewis gets to the end of that part he calls right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. He says something like, all right, so I've made a case that there is, an, there is sort of an objective foundation to morality. And he says something like, and I think this is verbatim, let's, but, but please know that this doesn't get you any closer to Christianity. 
Um, it's one you recognize that you have um, got worked against or not fulfilled the demands of that objective moral goodness. And you ex- he doesn't use the word on or terrors of conscience, but when you experience like the existential angst that results from that, that's when Christianity finally begins to speak. So everything he's doing here, any reasonable person, Lewis believes, can arrive at these sorts of conclusions. Uh, so again, it's, I mean, he's writing as a Christian, but he's doing, I think you said when you were introducing things, this is him doing pre, like what theologians would call prolegomena, and stuff that's before um, like con- confessing what God is like and what his disposition is towards his cre- creation and so on. So, so it's, it's, it's natural law stuff. It's at best natural theology. So value in reading this for, I know many of you, children and grandchildren are like wrestling with, objective truth and stuff, a way, trying to give a way into the conversation of, you go down that road, there's no, here, here's some of the, the ends. Mm-hmm. That is going to end in disaster for these reasons. Mm-hmm. So trying to get, get them to even consider the possibility of an objective truth, then we make a case for Christianity. Yeah. yeah, and let me throw a little Lutheran spin on it. If you're thinking... If you've been told, even if it's uh, Pastor Clemmer told you, and if he did tell you, tell me, because it means he had a bad teacher, which may have been me. Um, uh, if, if you've been told that, that Lutherans don't do this sort of thing, um, not true. Luther, in his, one of his commentaries, his Galatians commentary, one of his greatest works, he says, even when it comes to arguing about religion, when you're talking about religion, arguing about religion with those outside of your own tradition. He doesn't use the word, but when you talk, you're arguing about religion with Turks, that's Muslims in his day and age, Jews, and other sectarians. Those are what he, he used that term to refer to, like these sort of agnostics that are beginning to emerge in Italy in particular during the Renaissance. When you have to talk about even religion with them, you're outside, uh, you're in a, another arena, you don't have scripture. I mean, you have scripture, but quoting scripture isn't going to do any bit of good. Um, referring to great figures in church history will get you no get you get you no further. You have to be as wise and clever as a controversialist as possible. So even Luther, who allegedly is anti-reason and so on, that's totally untrue, but. Um, uh, acknowledges when you're in a different area and you're not in the midst of people who share common ground, like Christian common ground, you got to be a little more flexible in where you're starting. Luke, um, Luke does this at, at Mars Hill uh, in Acts 17 before the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Um, and, in fact, we all confess the small catechism, the first article of the creed, the explanation to it uh, has us confessing that God has made us and all creatures, and he's given us our reason and our sense experience. And I'm going to add in, even though we're fallen, he still preserves them. Christian and non-Christian. So there is some, it's not like you could, you're not going to get to the gospel. You're certainly not going to be able to persuade somebody of saving faith um, by force of argument. Um, But you can at least establish some sort of common platform uh, upon which the gospel might make sense. That's what I love the tactic by Gregory Coco that you told, told him about. Really helps because it's all about rather than confronting somebody 
or you know challenging them or telling them you know your opinion or your knowledge. It's more about tactics of asking questions. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? You know, help explain why you know why you're saying what you're saying. Yeah. And sometimes that can open up a conversation that at least they'll start to. You're not going to convert anybody, but you yeah. can get them to start thinking about yeah. you know what how they've always thought about things. Mm -hmm. and maybe they'll maybe they'll start to think differently. Yeah, yeah, questions. yeah, yeah, yeah. It 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 really exposes. Just asking simple questions sometimes right. exposes really crappy thinking going on in, in the world. Yeah. Next next month, February sixteenth, uh, we'll continue to the conversation on chapter two of Abolition of Man.